Good morning all, this is Randy Brunson with Centurion Advisor Group here with Sandy LaRue and Jamie Hamilton on this episode of Stewarding Family Wealth with our host, Gwinnett Business Radio X, Mike and Amanda in the studio with us. So glad that you're listening today. By the way, if you want to know about Centurion Advisor Group, uh, what is it, Centurion AG, Sandy, is that it? That's it, centurionag.com. Beautiful, okay, thanks. That's that's enough about us for the moment. Let's talk about uh, Jamie Hamilton. Jamie Hamilton is the Executive Director of Special Needs School of Gwinnett, and we are going to learn more about Special Needs School of Gwinnett and some just phenomenal opportunities that all of us have as it relates to special needs school. But first, let's 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 just learn about Jamie. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us in the studio this morning. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, good, good, good. Well, the, the I'm always curious. You and I have talked some, and I know some of your story and some of those kind of things, but um, – for years, you for a number of years, you've served as a golf professional. Is that right? Uh, yes, for about 15 years, I worked in the golf industry. Okay, well, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, tell us, if you don't mind, uh, where did you grow up? What what spurred your interest in golf, and then get moving into the into the golf world? And just tell us anything you want to tell us about your story. Sure. So I was born in Pittsburgh. Okay. A, a brief pit stop here in Atlanta, but Maryland was where Maryland was home. That's where I grew up, and oh. so. Um, I played a lot of sports as a kid, but uh, golf was something that my father and I did together. So always enjoyed that. And uh, as I got into high school, some of the other sports kind of fell by the wayside, but, but golf always stuck with me and it was something that I really enjoyed. I was fortunate to be pretty good at it um, and sort of thought that maybe there was a, a future in it for me. I wasn't quite good enough to, to consider playing at a high level. I never quite had that dream, um, but learned about a, a college golf program called Professional Golf Management which is basically the business of golf. And so for me, that seemed like a, a, enough golf, but something that I also felt like I could be successful in. So I decided to go that route. All right, so so I, I was curious about that. I think you've just answered the question because, you know, the uh, the PGA Tour has several, well, there are several tours within that, you know, development tours, farm teams, if you will. Uh, but it sounds as if you, you you chose not to go the starving artist route. You didn't pursue the dream of getting your tour card or anything like that. You just chose early on to, to go to the business side of golf. Correct. I mean, I, I, I can play golf at a high level and, and was very successful in high school, but I was also good enough to realize that there is a whole different stratosphere that you have to exist at if you want to chase that dream and mm-hmm. play golf professionally. So um, instead of being a professional golfer, I chose to become a golf professional. Exactly. And so, yeah, I made that decision early on. And um, I've had friends that have, have tried that other route and, and uh, toiled out there on mini tours for many years. Some succeed, very few do. Um, right. it's, it's a tough way to make a living. So I'm, I was happy with the route that I chose. Good, good, good. Well, and you shared a number of stories. So, so where did that, uh, grew up in Maryland, decided early on uh, to, to pursue the business side of golf. So where did that, where did that take you? Yeah, so initially it took me to Penn State. So Penn State at the time was one of about 12 schools in the country that offered this major. It's, it's uh, in partnership with the PGA of America. So you're basically getting at Penn State, it's a, it's a business degree, a recreation-based business degree and you're doing all of the uh, qualifications on behalf of the PGA of America to become a certified member when you when you graduate. And so you're doing internships in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, your classes are sort of intertwined with the academic requirements mm-hmm. uh, that the PGA has. You have to pass a playing ability test. And so it's, uh, it's actually a, a pretty unique but pretty demanding major when you factor in um, the playing, the working, and the educational components of it. And so uh, that was about a four and a half year journey for me 
And every summer we would go out on internships. It was you have to have 16 months of internships to graduate from the program. Wow. And so um, <laughs> a couple of three-month internships, uh, your first few years, and then your final is, is about a six-month internship, and you don't get to graduate until you've completed all of those. So that took me really all over the East Coast and uh, out of my comfort zone. I grew up playing golf at public golf courses and very sort of blue-collar approach to golf. And the further I went in, in my work experience, the more outside of that realm I was uh, able to go and go to some pretty unique places along the way. So over, the, over that college experience, uh, the, you know, on the ground training or on the golf course training, if you will, what, what, are, what are two or three memories that just stand out that were unique or special or that are, have special meaning to you? I mean, uh, we could uh, we have what half an hour. I can sit here all day <laughs> and tell stories, right. but okay, one I, or two. Then. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think really, for for me, um, my last internship was at a club called the National Golf Links of America, and that's in Southampton, New York. Okay. And I had never been out there before, and you hear, of course, stories about the Hamptons, mm-hmm. and um, but you know, it, it's just that world doesn't exist until you actually get to see it for yourself. And very early on in my time there, I met uh, most of the members are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, very mm-hmm. successful, you know, very, very wealthy, really great people that treat you very well. But there is clearly a line between you and them. Um, and then suddenly this young man is in the golf shop and he's not that much older than I am. And he introduces himself by his first name. And for the first few weeks that I knew him, he was Chase. And then I got curious one day and said, mm-hmm. I, I wonder who this guy is. He's awfully young to be a member at a club like this. And I looked him up online. It turns out he was one of the new hot shots uh, in, in financial advising and, mm-hmm. and hedge funds in New York. And uh, at the age of about 29, was earning in the neighborhood of $200 million a year. And I, I still can't really grasp what that means. But from a kid who grew up in, you know, pretty rural Maryland playing golf and, and a pretty blue collar approach to meeting someone who makes $200 million a year is, you know, I don't know if your eyes can open quite that wide or that, that was a shock to the system. And you sort of learn that there is this, this other world that exists out there. So, mm-hmm. um, but golf gets, for me, I always enjoyed the fact that golf can connect you with, with anybody, regardless of their background, their means. You know, I've played very meaningful rounds of golf with billionaires and I've played very meaningful rounds of golf with people who, you know, who, who don't have that luxury. And um, on the golf course, it's all kind of the same, and that's the beauty of it. That, that's true. That's true. You know, speaking, of, speaking of that experience, um, you're right. If you're, willing to, if you're willing to get up and go and do and, and get outside your comfort zone, you can have some fascinating experiences. And for example, our firm, we, we're an independent wealth management firm, and the majority of our clients are what I would define as the the working rich or the working wealthy. Yes, they've done they've done quite well. They've been diligent in business and life, and and so on and so forth. But uh, none of our clients have made two hundred million dollars in a year. Yeah, it's just that's an entirely different world. That's not a world that, that we have played in so far. Yeah, we're we're open to that, but yeah. you know. But so yeah, that would be a fascinating experience. Yeah, you just you know, it's it's surreal on levels that you can't even describe. And your first uh, first moment of of opening your eyes and reeling, realizing that that actually exists, that there are people who, who have that sort of a life, yep. it's, it's a shock to the system for sure. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, the beauty of golf is the golf club and the golf ball. They don't know who's, who's swinging it, who's in control of it. And right. whether you got $5 or $500 million, uh, it doesn't make it a lick of difference. Right. 
right, then there, there are tour players today who, uh, you know, the tour players come from all backgrounds, right. all over the all over the world, from mm-hmm. every country, almost every, well, not every country, but many countries around the world. Some come from significant wealth. Others grew up in a blue-collar environment and just took to golf. They had a natural interest and developed it, you know? Yeah, so. no, it, it levels, it, it certainly levels the playing field and, and natural talent matters, but your work ethic yeah. and how much time you're willing to dedicate yourself to it and practice. And um, right. sometimes folks who come from trying backgrounds have that deep down place they can go to you know when they face adversity and so yeah you mm-hmm. do hear of golfers that come from country club backgrounds and, and wealthy families but a lot of them come from those pretty trying circumstances and through sheer determination manage to make it that's that's, that's amazing uh, and here here you talk about that reinforces some of my own experiences that there's there's very few things that that can that can um, outperform simple perseverance and stick to itness and tenacity you know, and yeah. that's the 10,000 hour rule. We probably heard that bandied about in, in our business lives, you know, where you, you need to do something for 10,000 hours, just stay at it to be really good at it. But is it 10,000 hours in golf or more like 50 or 60,000 hours? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think the proper unit of measure is probably golf balls on the range. How many golf balls you're willing to hit over, yeah. over the that's, years? That's true. That's true. So, so there was that experience and then you moved, then you moved on to, um, you served as a golf professional in different places, different parts of the country, right? Yeah, so out of college, I, I transitioned that internship into an assistant professional job. So I was at National Golf Links for about five years. And in the world of golf, it's very seasonal. So that's a club that is open in the summer months and then closes in the winter. And so myself and most other golf pros up there packed our bags and went to Florida, Florida, mm-hmm. Arizona. You know, mm-hmm. the warm climates is where most people head to. So I went uh, to Jupiter, Florida, worked at a club down there, Ritz-Carlton uh, private club for about five years. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I had the very good fortune of following the golfers and, and the warm weather and the money around mm-hmm. to some pretty good places for about five years. Um, and then had an opportunity to advance in my career and go from an assistant professional to a head golf professional role. And I did so at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. So I, I moved there in, in 2010 to start that journey. Wow. So and you were telling us just before we went on the air that uh, the Greenbrier builds itself as, what'd you say? America's Resort. America's Resort. Okay. And memory tells me that the Greenbrier, is it Sulphur Springs, West Virginia? Yeah, White Sulphur Springs, exactly. West Sulphur Springs. No, what? Wh- White Sulphur. White Sulphur. White Sulphur Springs. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So, and that's in the, generally in the Appalachians, is that right? It is. So it's southeastern uh, West Virginia, but yeah, right in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And so, um, I mean, absolutely beautiful place. I mean, it's, uh, it is as scenic as you can imagine. West Virginia um, is one of the most beautiful places you'd ever want to be. And the Greenbrier is an exceptionally beautiful pocket within the state. Mm. So um, a really great place to be. So from a proximity standpoint, cities like Pittsburgh and Baltimore help us out there. Yeah, so the Greenbrier is about four hours away from a lot of things. So sort of Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Washington, Baltimore, Richmond, Charlotte are all within about the mm-hmm. three to four hour range. Okay. And so, yeah, the, the greater Washington area, Pittsburgh, Charlotte, and Richmond were sort of four very busy hubs. Um, so a lot of our guests and, and members, for that matter, mm. um, either traveled from there or that maybe was home base and they had a, a second vacation home at okay. the Greenbrier. All right. Nice. Nice. And then now, you it, you met your wife, Ashley, at the Greenbrier. To, Tell us about that, and you shared some stories about some big events at the Greenbrier. Mm-hmm. I'm just completely intrigued by it. So, talk 
talk about some of that. Yeah, so I, I came to the Green Bar in April of 2010, and, uh, and she joined that fall. So she came on as the director of special events. We were promoting the Green Bar is a 710-room hotel, a couple thousand guests, a few hundred homes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a major deal, and there's a lot of folks there, so they do a lot of uh, big events associated with that. Um, I came on very much because there was a PGA Tour event that was about to begin. So from a golf standpoint, um, that we were sort of back on the forefront and a lot of things were about to happen. So I sort of came on specific to that. Um, she joined to lead all of the other kind of events that happened around the hotel year round. Um, and so we had met and spent a little time around one another, but the sort of day we sort of got to know each other really was, um, of all things, at an Evander Holyfield boxing oh. match, which seems <laughs> kind of odd given he was just fighting uh, or being hit this weekend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we had an Evander Holyfield boxing match that was her fir first big event. And uh, so it, it ended very unceremoniously. It, was, it, it didn't mm. go as well as, as everybody had planned. Um, and so at the end of the night, I, I was in a tuxedo and she was in a ball gown and we were the only two people left in that in that ballroom cleaning up at the very end. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it, I think we may have been the only good thing that came out of that Evander Holyfield yeah. fight. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. That's a good story. Of course, the, the Greenbrier, if, if uh, listeners are not familiar with it, it like you said, it's a, it's a major resort, conference center, golf course, corporate events, homes, just, just a... Uh, yeah, very nice. Yeah, it runs the full gamut, and it's been around for a couple hundred years and has right. been one of the great stalwarts in sort of American hospitality for a couple hundred years yeah. and, and wow. still holds on to that, that title today and um, yeah, a really exceptional place. Good, good, good. Now, you were telling me, how I remember one of your stories because the, the Greenbrier itself, uh, those that live in the area that participate in the life of the Greenbrier, some things like this, it, it takes some coins. I mean, that's a, it, it takes some money to participate in that life, right? Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not an inexpensive place to visit or right. live. Mm -hmm. um, and and you told me one time about uh, Christmas, uh, an event around the holidays that served the local community and what what you saw and what you experienced just within a few miles of the Greenbrier location. Would you tell it? What happened? What does Greenbrier do? What does it look? What did you learn? What did you see? Sure. So, I mean, West Virginia is an awesome place, but it's, it's also, it can be a, a really depressing place. I mean, it's a state that really since the coal boom has ended, um, mm. There are incredible means, and they often live right down the road from poverty on levels that you just can't believe exist today in America. And so um, every Christmas, the owner, Jim Justice, uh, and the resort would, would donate, or I'm sorry, would give away a million dollars worth of toys wow. to charities and churches and nonprofit mm -hmm. groups and, and folks and families in need. And, and there's an exceptional amount of need. And so that's... Um, it would change year over year, but about thirty-five or 40,000 individual toys that would be given away. And wow. so that was one of the projects that my wife, or at the time, this girl that I was starting to get to know, yeah. um, was running. And so um, the first year, our, our hotel staff basically would wrap and prepare everything. But as it happened year over year, what, what it turned into was if you were a charity that received gifts one year, you would volunteer your time the next to help wrap and sort and prepare gifts for other charities mm. to receive that next year. And so we saw a lot of familiar faces and, and charities would participate year over year. And you start to meet some of these folks and learn the causes and the people that they serve and talk about the families and the children that ultimately receive some of these toys. 
and I mean, it's it's inspirational and heartbreaking all at the same time. And right. um, I will always remember we had a group from a local church that that brought the actual children who received the gifts to help wrap one year, mm-hmm. and they wanted to stay at the hotel that night, and so we helped get them a, a, a room. And these kids were running around like they were, you know, like it was a castle. This was the most unbelievable thing they had ever seen in their lives. And, and it was for us, too. I mean, it's an exceptional place. But when you see it through the eyes of someone whose life is so different from that, and these were kids that live 15 or 20 minutes away from the resort, and they start telling you about the homes that these kids live in. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, showing you pictures of the places that, that they live in. Like I said, you just, it's 2010 or 11 or 12, whenever this was, you just mm-hmm. you couldn't fathom that, that people lived like that. Right. And so it made what we were doing, not only with that event, but all the other charitable initiatives and things that, um, that the Green Bar championed to give back. It made it, it was very clear why that was so important. Yeah, and probably, um, I guess it's possible that some of these homes um, did not have, have indoor plumbing oh, or yeah. it, running water or it, th- yeah, those kinds of things. A hundred percent. There was one family whose house was it was literally a dirt floor. I mean, when I tell you, it was probably like a shack. Wow, is is not an exaggeration and. Wow. It's, um, it's, uh, there are people that just live in little corners and it's not just West Virginia. There's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot mm-hmm. of other places like this who it's literally, you know, the world has moved on and sort of forgotten about some of these places and people, you know, they're, they have their family and their faith and the things that are important to them and yeah. they, they live and, and sustain, but in, in ways that most of us just can't ever imagine having to go through life. It's, it's really heartbreaking um, but mm-hmm. you see these people and they come out and those kids the smiles on their faces mm-hmm. the joy that they mm-hmm. took for getting to be just for a night at a place like that it also kind of reaffirms all the good stuff that yeah. you know is out there as well yeah and perhaps you know those experiences because uh, I've, I've learned along the way that you know you the three of us sitting here behind microphones we know that we have options right we have options mm-hmm. and choices in life but I have met people, I've had conversations with people, they, do, they don't know that they have options. They believe that whatever their life is, and it doesn't mean that they live in a shack in West Virginia on a dirt floor. They could come from any number of circumstances, but sometimes people don't know they have a choice. They don't know they have options. They believe that wherever it is they are and however they've lived, that's what the way it has to be. And, and that is that is for better or for worse, a lot of West Virginia. And I think it's, uh, they're, they're very prideful of where they're from, um, but also they, um, you know, w- when, what they lack in all of those other things, family matters to them more than anything, more than I think even sometimes we claim family is the most important thing in our lives. Well, sure. when that's mm-hmm. all that you, literally all you have, you cling to that. And so you, you have a child and say, well, gosh, why don't you go away to college or go move to Morgantown or go, go to Richmond or go to, there's all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. I'm not leaving my family. That's, that's the only thing that I've ever had. Why on earth would I ever leave? I was born here. I'm going to die here. And, mm-hmm. and if there's not something in your immediate community, then, then they literally, many of them go through life with, with 
very limited opportunities minimal mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you know you don't even hear i mean i hear you say about the dirt floors i just you hear about that in other countries like haiti and south africa or certain areas of these other countries you don't really hear about it much here so i think at least for me there's some ignorance there that you just don't realize because we're such a country known for our opportunity yeah and it's amazing it's uh yeah it's it's shocking to know that that still exists and a lot of appalachia is like that you know you go into kentucky and a lot of other states um it's the unfortunate side of the coal industry is there's been a lot of money made but it's been made by very few people and it Mm -hmm. often goes outside the state it's it's money that someone else is, is taking elsewhere and um is that and industry and timber and some of the things that used to be very prevalent in that part of the country go away Mm-hmm. You have towns that are literally just left to to rot and turn into ghost towns, and you have a few families that live in them. But it's yeah. in, until you see it, very much like my my you know story in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. Until you see it firsthand, you just can't believe that that exists. Right. And in only a few years, I had the opportunity, I guess you would call it, to, to see both ends of that extreme, and they're equally as shocking. No, absolutely, yeah. Sandy. You had a question. Uh, well, and that just gives you perspective. But yeah, so. So here you are in West Virginia. So what brought you to Georgia and what brought you to the special needs school, um, that program? What brought you here? So initially, my wife brought me here. So mm. it's, it's kind it's of funny. Reason. For yeah, <laughs> for many years, we assumed I would get a golf job and she would follow. Mm. Um, in 2019, I, I made the choice to get out of the golf business. And so I, I made a transition, was doing some nonprofit development work there in West Virginia. Mm. And, uh, and Ashley had the opportunity to take a golf job down here. She's the tournament director for the Mitsubishi Electric Classic. Um, and so, yeah, the table's completely flipped. Mm-hmm. She had an opportunity. I said, okay, let's, let's do what I managed to convince um, the folks I was working for up there that I could uh, do it semi-remotely. So I was doing a distance work or remote work before it was in vogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we made the move down here in late 2019. Um, I had the chance to meet Mike Maloney. Mike is the president of the board at special needs schools. I had not well, but I had known Mike a little bit through the golf space. And we had lunch one day and he, he said, you know, well, what have you been doing since golf? And I said, well, you know, nonprofit development work and, and sort of telling you my stories there. And he said, there's this school that I'm on the board for. And we've actually thought about a position very much like what you have been doing. Would you want to come see the school and, and learn more about it? And so mm-hmm. it just started this, this opportunity. And, um, I joined April 1st of 2020, so we were under construction. COVID was, was the new thing. So I, I literally, my first day, there was no school because it was under construction and there were no students because we were in remote learning. And so um, an interesting way to start uh, a tenure at a school for sure, but um, an absolute blessing. It's, you know, it's a, a wonderful place. Um, they've been doing great things for decades. Um, I'm just the person that has been lucky enough to get to tell the story and make people mm-hmm. aware of it. And nothing I'm doing is, is special or I'm not reinventing the wheel. We're just, we're just making awareness and letting people know the awesome things that have and will continue to happen there. And we're really lucky that, that people gravitate to it and, and want to help. And so it's been an awesome year and a half. Good. And it, 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 you and I met about that time. I, th- I think it was April of, of mm-hmm. last year of 2020 when we met. And I just, just um, I was completely impressed. You, One of the gifts you have is just this uh, gift of everybody, mm-hmm. uh, everybody likes Jamie. Yeah. Okay. It just, it's, it's part of um, 
nobody's ever accused me of that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true. This is true, Mike. Uh, but but everybody, you're just you know you're, you're you're personable people like you. You like people. You get along well with everyone. It's mm-hmm. just you know it's it's part of what I'm certain. Um, uh, worked well for you as a as a golf professional because you dealt with some very large personalities during oh, that sure. time. Yeah, it's you know? you know when I when I made the choice to leave golf and and go do anything else, it's gosh, I've been this is all I've done professionally and this has been my career. It, it, uh, the skills, the the lessons you learn in a business like that, are they going to translate? And I I was optimistic that they would, mm. um, but it turns out you know I you can substitute golf for just hospitality in general. When, when you work in the business of taking care of people and creating experiences, uh, you find out that there are a lot of other industries and places that that is applicable in. And mm-hmm. I've had other friends that have left golf to go sell things or, you know, it's, it, it, can, it can travel pretty well. Um, I've just been really lucky that it's taken me down this path. And the, the sort of comparison I make is I've always served. I used to serve because people paid for it, whether it was a vacation or a membership or an event. They often paid a lot of money for, for me to serve on their behalf. I now serve because there are people out there who don't have those means but, but still need someone out there advocating on their behalf and creating awareness mm-hmm. and providing them the things that maybe they don't have the opportunity to provide for themselves. Um, so I, I still sort of do the same thing. I've just shifted it into a different direction and one that, you know, it, it, it it touches you somewhere that a really good member guest can't quite, you know, get to you. It's, yeah. you know, you're doing some really good work and for people that really deserve it. Good, good, good. And you, you started, you started in a role of, of um, sort of donor development, enhancement, you know, those kinds of things. And earlier this year, you, you were promoted to, or the board asked you to serve as executive director. Is that right? Exactly. So my title initially was uh, director of community and donor engagement. So okay basically everything outbound fundraising and, and mm-hmm. all the networking and all the things you do to create right. awareness. Um, and I did that for, for a year. And uh, despite COVID and all the craziness that it's caused, it also brought a lot of attention and momentum to our school. And so uh, we've continued to, to grow throughout this, this really crazy time in the world. And things that I think everyone assumed would happen maybe in five years happened in five months. And the conversation of, you know, when do we start thinking about expanding and adding more and and what about you know enhancing our young adult program and all the things that were eventually going to happen happened really fast mm. and so yeah i was was very uh, honored to be asked to take on that executive director role and sort of control the chaos i'm not you know my mom was a teacher so i've, I've grown up around the world of education but i'm not an educational expert uh, we've got great you know educational leaders at the school so from an education standpoint I'm there to have their back and support them and do, you know, ask them what we need to do to keep moving it forward. And then at a little bit of a higher level, I get to try to do the things that we need to do to keep building on the last 30 years and make sure that we can, you know, still be viable and important and impactful for, you know, for decades to come. Good, good, good. Well, the, um, we, we are just about out of time for this first episode but uh, for those of you listening please stay tuned for the second episode because I'm, I'm curious uh, I want to learn more about this about special needs school of Gwinnett it, mm-hmm. its history um, but in particular what makes it unique when Gwinnett County Public Schools who have a history of just national achievement and offer special education mm-hmm. what makes special needs school of Gwinnett so special and unique in particular I know we have many business owners that listen to this podcast okay and there are some significant 
tax benefits to supporting special needs school of Gwinnett, all right? And to date, I think I've only met one or two people that saw it as their moral responsibility to pay taxes. They are not clients, by the way. They're not clients. Uh, <laughs> most people prefer to pay less taxes and more taxes. So I want to talk more about how people can, can do s- some things tax efficiently and support special needs school. So um, let's uh, wrap this episode up and jump right into the next one. Folks, this is Randy Brunson with Centurion Advisory Group on Gwinnett Business Radio X. Find us at centurionag.com. Thanks to all of you. Thank you.